0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn with me to Luke 24. We're going to be looking at verses 36 through 53. Now, I know... Uh, The standard wisdom would be, on an Easter Sunday, you may have lots of people visiting, and so you should probably tone it down a little bit. You should probably go a little lighter uh, as as far as the content, and and maybe not be so deep into the scriptures, and uh, as some of you are not going to be surprised at all, I'm going the exact opposite direction, Uh, and and amen, and so (laughs) I hope uh, it'll be clear why as we get into these scriptures. I don't know how we could read these and not head in that direction. So, that is where we're going. What we're doing is we're entering into the end of Dr. Luke's account of the resurrection of Jesus. And so, at this point, where we find ourselves picking up, uh, the female disciples have already found the empty tomb. They have been reminded by angels that Jesus told them he would rise before he died. And so they've also now gone and reported all of this to the apostles. Uh, the fact, just as a sidebar, that all of the gospel accounts record women being the first to discover the empty tomb and to hear from the angels is a great piece of evidence that this is not made up. If you take into account the fact that in the first century, uh, this was very dumb, but this is just how it was. Uh, the testimony of a woman would not have held up in court. That was kind of the cultural moment it was in. And so if I'm in the first century and I'm trying to cook up a fake religion and get everyone to buy into it, I'm for sure not going to say it was, it was women that heard it first. It was women that found the empty tomb first. That would not be the way you would go. Uh, a piece of evidence that this is not a fake religion that's been cooked up, but Jesus indeed did rise from the grave. Amen. Uh, so the women report to the apostles. Most of them doubted. Uh, but Peter and John ran to the tomb, and in John's account, we see the brotherly affection between the disciples, uh, as he makes sure to mention that he got there first, which I appreciate very much. Uh, and so <clears throat> then, uh, as, as Luke continues, uh, there's there's two disciples. They did not recognize him at first, but Jesus appears to these two guys on the road to Emmaus, and these guys were bummed out that Jesus hadn't fulfilled their expectations of leading a military overthrow of their Roman oppressors, okay? So that's where Jesus finds them, uh, as, and, and, and Jesus, like, they don't recognize him at first, so he's kind of like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And, and they're like, you know, Cleopas, this one guy with a smart mouth, says to Jesus, are you the only person that hasn't heard about what's going on? It's like, ooh, you know, it doesn't surprise me that I don't hear the name Cleopas uh, on many babies, right? It's like if you're going to be famous, man, that was not the thing to be fa- smart mouth in Jesus, resurrected Jesus, no less. Cleopas, my man, wow! But <clears throat> so that's that's kind of where he finds them, and and uh, they 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 even when they're explaining to Jesus what they're talking about, they even re- they mention to Jesus the report of the women. But these guys still just clearly didn't get it yet. Then, in verse 27 of the chapter we're in, uh, we're told that beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus explained to these two guys, and here's the words, the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. Okay? And, and then, then, after that, they convinced Jesus to eat with them. He took some bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were opened to who he was. And then, even faster than some Christians at the end of a Sunday, Sunday gathering, Jesus vanished from their sight. Oh, that was uncomfortable, wasn't it? Oh man, yeah. You know, hang out a minute and say hi. You'll be okay. It's it's actually really awesome. Okay, uh, so that's where we find ourselves. Jesus teaches him on the road about you know, where he is in all of the scriptures. And keep in mind, if Jesus is referring to the scriptures, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament, right? The New Testament isn't written yet. So when Jesus does this Bible study on the road to Emmaus, he's referencing himself in all of the Hebrew scriptures, all right? And, and that's going to come up again as we read the verses today. All right, so we're in Luke 24, uh, verses 36 through 53. If you don't have a Bible with you, they will be on the screen And if you don't own a Bible, we'd be really happy to give you one before you leave. Okay, so here we are, verse 36. Here we go. So these guys get up from the... Jesus vanishes. Jesus, you know, David blames these guys, right? And then they get up and they run back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles what happened. And while they were telling these things, so these guys, they're telling, hey, we just met Jesus on the road and we had this awesome Bible study and and he broke bread and and then we knew it was him. So they're, they're telling their story. While they were doing that, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. One of the other gospel accounts, make sure to let us know the door was locked. So it's not that the door opened up and Jesus walked in. Part of why these guys were about to read are freaked out is because all of the sudden, the same way he vanished, Jesus appears, okay? But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is not myself, I myself, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you, which I while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Praise God for his word. Amen. Now, let's come back to verse 36 and work our way through these verses. This greeting of peace, Jesus starts off with peace be to you. This was was the first time ever in history that these guys could have really had this peace in its truest sense. Only after Jesus rose from the grave could they actually have peace with God Peace without, peace within, and with each other. In the truest and fullest sense of what the peace of God means. Peace in every realm and in every way. It is only with a resurrected Christ that somebody could actually access this peace of God. The biggest part of that that would be missing would be peace with God. Without a resurrected Christ, you do not have the finished gospel. You do not have a a savior who has died on the cross in your place for your sins and then defeated death and come up out of the grave that you may place faith in his power to save. And it is only through faith in the finished work of Christ that we can have peace with God. And it's that vertical peace with God that then flows into all the rest of our life. Peace with one another. Peace with what's going on around us. So Jesus gives them this greeting. He starts with peace to you. But the question is, Now, we have the resurrected Christ standing in front of them and saying, peace be to you. But did they experience peace in its full beauty right then, simply because he stood before them and gave them this greeting? The answer is no, they did not. Verse 37 tells us that. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. They didn't get it yet, did they? These guys still weren't grasping it. The risen Christ was standing right in front of them. And even still, they are troubled with doubts. And if, you, if we hadn't just read the rest of this and you were trying to anticipate what happens next, you, you could wonder, is, is this the final straw? Is this the point where Jesus takes off one of his flip-flops and just starts handing out cranium smacks all around the room? Right? How many of you had a mama that if her sandal came off, you knew it was not time to play? <laughs> or you've at least heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. My, you know, Whew. My mom can throw a shoe with amazing accuracy. It's incredible. <clears throat> but that's not what happens. Jesus' sandals stay on, don't they? <laughs> Actually, let's, let's, not be, uh, let's not be blasphemous. I don't know if he's wearing sandals at this point. We don't have a full description of his outfit, but uh, he, didn't, he didn't smack anybody. Uh, no, what we see here is that the love and patience of God is so clear in the way that Jesus responds to these disciples who he has trained, and he's, he's, he's already saying, guys, I'm, I'm just here telling you things I've already told you, but here's the thing. He's patient and he's long-suffering. He doesn't scold them. What does he do? He helps them think logically through the reality of what they are seeing. He doesn't scold them and say, why, why don't you just have more faith? No, Jesus begins to move into helping them think about what is it that they're seeing, and, and how is it that they can be sure that that is reality? What, what, what am I saying? I'm saying God has no problem with our doubts. God is not scared of the fact that sometimes things don't make sense to us. God is very much willing to walk with you through a process of understanding the faith that we have is not just a fanciful belief because it, it seems like it'd be nice to believe it. It's a logical faith. What, and what do I mean by that? Well, he, let's, let's read. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do, your, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me... And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This is a, this is a logical approach to them understanding what's going on, right? Come and touch. Don't, I'm not, Jesus didn't say, well, I'm standing here. Just believe. Just believe. He said, come here. First of all, look. You see these marks on my hands and my feet. Now, come here. Touch me. A spirit doesn't have, a ghost, an apparition, doesn't have flesh and bones like you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Verse 41, while well, they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, and then he's going to move into another physical proof for them, another logical piece of evidence so that they can see that they're dealing with a fully resurrected, bodily resurrected Christ. But we see this line here, verse 41, they still could not believe, so now they're moving away from, what is it? It said they were frightened. They were startled and frightened, which I don't blame them. You know, All of a sudden, Jesus is there. I, I get it. Any of you that are like, oh, I'd have been totally cool with that. You, you might be lying to yourself, okay? That's okay. Hallelujah. The, the word will help us be humble too. Uh, <clears throat> but but then, then it changes, right? So they're still in unbelief. They're still struggling with not believing it, but because of their joy and amazement. And, and honestly, that would seem like total nonsense to me, this connection of their joy and amazement to still not being able to believe it if if I hadn't experienced it before and and I guess we we have a kind of a a common modern equivalent to that you you've heard it said it's too good to believe or it's it's this is such a good thing it's 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 unbelievable so that's kind of the space they were inhabiting, but I think I would really struggle to even get what that means if I hadn't had an experience like that in my life so Here's, here's what happened. Uh, Natalie and I, Natalie's my wife, if you don't know that, we, we met at a Christian kids camp. We were both counselors when we were 16 years old. And so we, we worked a summer at camp. And then I lived in Western Illinois. She lived here in the Cincinnati area. And so we were together long distance. And I was there finishing my senior year of high school. And, uh, you know, long distance relationships are, are tough and they're a bummer. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was getting kind of hard, and so uh, Natalie and her mom cooked up this plan that I didn't know about to come visit me. And so I worked at a grocery store called Jewel Osco. Has anybody ever heard of Jewel Osco anywhere? Okay, two people, amen. Uh, it's not that important. It's not that important of a detail. You've all been in a grocery store, so you can figure out that part of the scene. So, okay, so I'm, I'm stocking shelves. I'm in the ice cream aisle, stocking ice cream. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good stock boy. I'm doing my job, whatever. And and so I've got the thing open. And I set some ice cream down, and I close the door, and I turn around, and there's Natalie in the aisle. And I'm I'm just trying to tell you, it was like every I, it was like I shifted into a dream. I, I like reality got weird, and I'm like this what is, it was too good to be true, man. My girl had and, driven seven hours to come see me, but at first I was like, hold. on hold on a second. And I got, I got so mad, I got, I'm in the middle of a shift, right? I got so discombobulated. I just walked up to the manager. I said, dude, I have to go home. Like I can't, I literally, I tried to keep working and I just kept walking back and forth with the ice cream. I had stocked this ice cream a thousand. Like I was the man at stocking ice cream. I couldn't figure out where the Briars, chocolate chunky, whatever went anymore. I was just in a daze, man. So it was, you know, I, and so then, you know, we just went out to dinner and it was awesome. So anyways. Um, I, get what the, I get it, man. They were in such amazement. Now they were, it wasn't fear that was causing them unbelief or doubt. It was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, right? Like I, I'm almost afraid to, to, to reach out and grab it because it's like, it, it's, it, how could this be true? We're looking at Jesus. We're looking at our master that we just watched, tortured, and die on a cross just a couple days ago, and here he is standing before us. And then we see in the back half of 41, he says, do you have anything here to eat? And then 42, they give him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. This is not primarily because Jesus was hungry. Jesus is giving them here another logical piece of evidence to consider. He said, come and touch me. Apparitions, spirits, ghosts don't have flesh and bones. And then he takes this piece of fish and eats it so they can see this is... A physical body. And, and this is another reason why I am inclined to believe the historicity of this account because, if, again, if you're trying to cook up something and, and it's fake, it would be so much easier to claim Jesus spiritually resurrected, right? There's no verification needed for that. You could, you could go to the tomb, the body still be there, and all you have to say, oh, well, well, the resurrection he was talking about was spiritual. So you can't say he did or didn't really. There'd be no way to prove it one way or the other. But when you go so far as to say, (laughs) he is going to physically rise from the grave, you can figure out whether that really happened or not. Whether the stone is still in place, whether the body still lays there or not. A spiritual resurrection is much easier to fake than a physical one. But Jesus did not just raise spiritually, he raised physically. And he made sure there was no confusion about this important fact. And part of why this is so important is that the Bible says Jesus went first, that his bodily resurrection and then ascension to perpetual uh, audience with the Father, that that's the same path we all will one day follow. And so it's important that we know Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Now verses 44 through 49, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. You would think that this appearance and proofs of his bodily resurrection would be enough, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think, like, that's what so many would want. But it's interesting, we don't see the worries of the disciples turn to worship until Jesus reminds them of his words, And not just what he had spoken while he was with them, but what was written about him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And and him saying the law, the prophet, and the Psalms, in other words, what he's saying is all of the Old Testament scriptures. He said all had to be fulfilled. And this means every promise made had to be fulfilled and even the fullest expression of every foreshadowing or typology you see throughout the Old Testament had to be fulfilled. And it is only after the miraculous power we see exerted in verse 45, and I'm using all those words very intentionally, what am I saying happened in verse 45? I'm saying miraculous power was exerted from Jesus toward his disciples. In In what? when he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The miraculous power of Christ was exerted so that these guys could have their minds opened to the truth of the scriptures. And when, when we say the scriptures, part of why Jesus said the law, the prophets, and the psalms, for, for Hebrews in that day, the the scriptures, the, the what we call the Old Testament, oftentimes, or the Hebrew scriptures, it was it was divided into the law. That's the Torah, the first five books penned by Moses, the Pentateuch, right? So you had the law, the prophets, which was all the, the prophetic literature. So much of that is, is kind of after, you know, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. That's kind of where they're grouped together in most of our Bibles today. But it also included things like the Book of First and Second Samuel, and some other pieces. And then there was what's called the writings. And the writings included the Psalms and the Proverbs, some of the other historical accounts, the first and second Chronicles, other books, right? So there was this three-part division, kind of understood in these different types of literature within the Old Testament, and Jesus is saying there was things about him in all of them, and they had to be fulfilled. And where we see the pivot, Jesus... Bodily resurrected Jesus, who had, who had David Blaine disappeared off the road to Emmaus, now David Blaine appeared in this room, said, come touch me, ate fish, but we're still seeing language that they're, they're struggling to believe. It's not until verse 45, it's not until Jesus opened their mind to understand the Scriptures. When it came to their worrying becoming worship, the difference was Jesus taking them to the word of God. That's what made the difference. And so many people think, oh, if, if Jesus would just appear to me, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. That's not what we need. What we need is our minds to be opened to the scriptures in the same way it was for the disciples. That is how true faith leads to true worship happens. Jesus said he's looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. The only way you're going to be able to worship in truth is understanding who God is and who Christ really is, and the only way you're going to do that is from his word. The word of God is the means by which he has ordained the seed of faith to be planted in the hearts of men and women. Here's the problem with an appearance of Jesus. An appearance of Jesus still leaves room for us to fill the blanks in, in our own minds, of of who he is and what he's about. It it leaves room for us to fill it in with our own desires, with our own ideas, much like the two men on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus walked up to them, they were bummed out because Jesus being crucified meant to them that he, he failed. Because what they were looking for was a military leader to rise up and free them from Roman oppression. That's what they thought the whole thing was with the Messiah. He's going to lead us to this kind of nation-state supremacy place where we're going to vanquish all of our physical enemies. They did not see the bigger picture, that the enemy that Jesus was coming to defeat was not the Romans, it was sin and death. And it wasn't just for the people of Israel, it was back to the promise of Abraham that through. His seed, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. God's picture of the thing was always bigger. And the problem is, Jesus just appearing to someone, that's, that still leaves you the opportunity to, to do the my Jesus thing. Well, my Jesus, is it doesn't matter. Okay, There's not a my Jesus and your Jesus and their Jesus. There's a Jesus. He's the Lord of glory. He defines himself. He defines his own purposes. He rules and he reigns. And the way you can know for sure what he's about is from his word. That's where he took them, the pivot point of the account of them going from unbelief to belief, of them going from fear and being overwhelmed to being able to end up worshiping perpetually, was when Jesus opened their mind to the scriptures and showed them how the law and the prophets and the writings all pointed to him. Unlike false gods, we do not form and shape King Jesus with the force of our will and personal preferences. We receive the truth of who he is, and we yield ourselves to be shaped by the might of his perfect will. That's how this looks. And this time in the room is now round two. He'd already taken the two disciples on the road to Emmaus through this incredible Bible study, Showing them himself in all the scriptures is, is what it said. So this is round two. He's bringing his disciples from confusion and unbelief to clarity and faith. And he does this by taking them to the scriptures. And that all, all of that, it, it makes John chapter one even more profound. When it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It starts to make more sense. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. You will not know, trust, or love Jesus aside from His Word because He is the Word become flesh. And so what did they see? What, after Jesus opened their mind to the Scriptures, what did they see that they couldn't be after Jesus does this miracle of opening their mind to the scriptures and takes them through this study so that they can see Him in all that had been written in the law, the prophets, and the writings, I would never presume to think that I could replicate what Jesus took these men through, but I can give it a shot. And to read this, to read that the whole kickoff of the Christian faith started with men trembling, even trembling before their risen Savior, and the pivot to them being able to worship and to move forward in faith and boldness and confidence, to do what he said had already been been prophesied was going to happen, that people were going to go out and now tell that sins can be forgiven by grace through faith, that a Messiah has come, that there is hope for all mankind. The only way they went from cowering to being able to move forward in courage was something like what I want to do with you right now. And that's why I told you at the beginning of this thing I couldn't just step up here today, come up with a couple fluffy stories that would make us all giggle a little bit, and then send you on to eat ham. So we're about to get in the scriptures. And if you're visiting day and you're like, hold on, we didn't already do that, I know. <laughs> okay. It's okay. I don't think the ham will burn. We'll get you, we'll get you out in, in enough time. Those angel eggs are waiting, I know. And that's... But I need you to focus on what's happening right here. G- just give me a few more minutes, <laughs> okay? Amen. If Jesus was going to show them himself... If he was going to show them in the law and the prophets, the psalms, the writings, all the rest, the whole Hebrew scriptures himself, where would he start? I would submit to you, you could go all the way to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It says the earth was formless and void. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then the very first thing he did was say, let there be light. It's very interesting. The sun was not created until day four. And yet, day one, God said, let there be light. There's a very reasonable argument to be made that this light that lighted all of this brand new creation of God was the very essence of Christ himself, backed up at least by the fact that Jesus said on multiple occasions, I am the light of the world. Move forward to Genesis three. Starts to become even even more clear and apparent. Our first parents have chosen to rebel against God, and now the consequences are being laid out. God lets know lets Adam know that now uh, what what was a, a joyful task in tending the garden work is going to be hard. It's going to be by the sweat of his brow. The ground's going to give him thorns and thistles. To the woman he says, "There's going to be pain in childbearing." There's, there's now the results of sin, now, now, now death and destruction, the, the undoing, the breaking, the twisting of all the good things God put into creation. Sin has now been able to begin its corrupt work. But then he turns and he lets the serpent know, the one who did the deceiving, that there is going to be a seed of the woman that will come. And though the serpent will bruise his heel, that seed of the woman is going to crush his head. It's very interesting language. You, not to get into uh, like a high school health class here, but friends, just think about it. If you're thinking about procreation and you think about the word seed, you don't normally associate that with the woman. You understand what I'm saying? It's very interesting for the words here to, to be talking about the seed of a woman. This is pointing to the virgin birth of Christ through Mary, That's right. that God provided the supernatural seed for that birth to happen. And that from Mary was going to come Jesus, the serpent crusher. They had tried to cover themselves with fig leaves and hide from God, but God sacrifices an animal and makes animal skins to cover them. This is a nod pointing forward already to the atonement of sin, the covering that God is going to do ultimately in Christ. Not too much longer, Abel is killed by his brother for really one thing, being righteous, this is a typology, of pointing forward to Jesus. It doesn't take long, the corruption of the earth becomes to the point where God floods the earth, and yet there's one righteous man, righteous because he believed God when God said, I need you to build an ark. And By faith, for many, many decades, he built that ark, an ark that had one door upon which him and his family entered that ark by faith, believing it would save them from the destruction to come. The ark is pointing forward to Christ. Even the rainbow, the promise that God gave after the flood, that he would never flood the earth again, it is shaped like a war bow. And that war bow, instead of being pointed down at the earth, is pointed up toward heaven, signifying the next time judgment comes for sin, the arrow is going to hit heaven and not earth pointing to the very gospel that we were waiting for. Abraham was a man counted righteous because of faith. This is this is a, the 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 most prominent beginning picture of what God's total plan was in the gospel that it was going to be by faith and grace alone that mankind was going to be saved from sin. Abraham is declared righteous because of faith, and he is told that through his seed, through his lineage, that all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And then Isaac, his son, a miracle baby given to his parents in his old age, a baby conceived through supernatural intervention. Then, as he's a young boy, is later marched up a hill with wood on his back to be sacrificed. And yet, at the top of the hill, God provided the sacrifice for himself. What am I doing, friends? I'm taking you through what the law and the prophets and the writings, how they point to Jesus. I'm I'm helping us, and I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit right now, for some of you, we, we haven't hit anything you haven't heard before. Great. Rejoice in the fact that all of the scriptures are screaming the name of Jesus, okay? But maybe for some of you, your mind hasn't yet been open to the scriptures. Maybe for some of you, a missing link of you being able to move from from fear and trepidation when you think about God to courage and boldness, maybe what you need is your mind open to the scriptures. So you can This can either rock you the way it did the disciples for the first time today, or it can cause you to rejoice yet again at the continuity and the beauty of the entirety of the scriptures. So many people think the Bible is this fragmented bit of stories and moral uh, lessons. That's not what it is. The Bible is one story telling us that we have a good God who made us, that we rebelled against him, and that he has done absolutely everything necessary to fix the problem we caused. That's the story of the Bible. And that in the end, we're going to have what we should have had at the beginning: us and him forever, but now with no potential for sin. We will never have to do this again. Thank God. The birth of Isaac. Genesis 14, you have this guy pop up named Melchizedek. His name means King of Righteousness and King of Peace, and he just happens to also be a high priest before there was ever even a Levitical priesthood. What's that about? It's a, it's a type and a shadow, pointing us forward to Christ. We're getting bits and pieces. We're getting hints. Isaac has a son named Jacob who has to flee because he deceives his brother, steals his blessing, and he's going to head up to Haran to his uncle's house. But on the way... He camps and he has this dream, a vision of a ladder to heaven. And there's angels ascending and descending. You may say, "Well, what does that have to do with Jesus?" Well, Jesus in John chapter 1 verse 51 said to him, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heavens, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man." The latter in Jacob's vision, yeah, that was pointing to Jesus too. Jacob has many sons. One of them is Joseph, who is betrayed by his own brothers for silver, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, lied about, but through all of that hardship ends up in the one place where he could have the authority to save his family from certain death through famine. Joseph is a type and a shadow of Jesus. Judah, when him and his brothers come and are before Joseph, Joseph says he wants Benjamin to stay. One guy steps up and says, man, don't keep Benjamin. Take me instead. One guy steps up and is willing to offer himself in place of his brother. It's Judah. Interesting that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Then comes Moses, who escapes a genocidal king. Who else does that sound like? Remember that part of Jesus' story? Had to flee to Egypt? Moses escapes a genocidal king and is called to lead his people out of slavery. Moses is a foreshadowing and a type of Christ. Friends, this is what I'm telling you. This is the kind of Bible study Jesus would have been doing with the men in the room. This is what he'd have been doing, taking them through and showing them In the law, in the prophets, in the writings, it was always pointing to him. At the end of the plagues, there's the Passover, where a lamb has to be killed, the blood has to be put over a doorpost, so that the punishment, the death angel coming through, killing all the firstborn, can pass over the homes that have put faith in the word of God and trusted in the blood of a lamb. This points forward to Christ and his gospel. Then they flee from Egypt. They cross the Red Sea and they're hungry. And God provides manna in the wilderness, a bread-like substance that God daily provides, pointing forward to Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. The water from the rock. And at this point, you might be thinking, man, are are you stretching, dude? Are you trying to Are you trying to make more that's in in the Old Testament relate to Jesus than it should? I hope you're skeptical. I want people to think, man. I don't want people to just take it because somebody said it and they have a microphone. Amen. But here's the reality. Is is the water from the rock in the wilderness, that provided life to the Israelites, is that pointing to Jesus? Well, Paul thought so. Write this down if you're worried. 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says, that rock was Christ. And it it makes sense. How did Moses get the water out of the rock, love city? Go ahead, yell it out if you know it. He struck the rock. Is it not interesting that the rock had to be struck for the life to come out? Someone else had to be struck. John 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus had to be struck down. Jesus had to rise and be glorified so that the promise of the Spirit, which we just read about today, why did he say wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high? He was telling them wait for the Holy Spirit. These rivers of living water, that was the Spirit of God that was now going to be given to mankind. And, and it, was, it was the plan all along, you see. Jesus said, I have to go. It's better for you for me to go because when I go, I can send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, this living water, that all of you are parched for, and you may not even know it. It doesn't stop there. There's an account where the people of Israel are grumbling against God for various reasons. And as a result, poisonous serpents come into the camp and begin to bite them. And God instructs Moses to lift up a bronze serpent. If the people will look to the bronze serpent, they'll be healed from the bites. John 3, verse 14, this is Jesus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Jesus thought the bronze serpent was about him. That's good enough for me. The tabernacle itself... It, 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 it was, it was a, a dwelling place for God that could move around with the people as they moved through the wilderness. I quoted John 1 to you before. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Move down to verse 14 of John 1. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt literally means tabernacled. The tent in the wilderness that God's presence could be with the people was ultimately pointing to Jesus who was going to come and tabernacle with us so that God's presence could be in us forever. We have a far superior setup to a tent that moves around and has an ark where God's presence can be and one guy can go in one time a year. Some of you might wish you had this physical presence of a tabernacle. At least there's something tactile I could go look at and see, but friends, what you have is something so far superior to that. You've been made into the tabernacle yourself. The presence of God now dwells in you. And that was the plan all along. But it couldn't have been accomplished without the perfect work of Christ, his sacrifice and his resurrection. We then leave the wilderness and and we think about Joshua who courageously led the people of God into the promised land, continuing the work of Moses who was called a deliverer of God's people. Moses laid his hands on Joshua and Joshua continued, took the people into the promised land, led them in battle. Christ is the captain of our army and Joshua is a type of Christ. It also doesn't hurt that Joshua and Jesus are different English translations of the exact same word. In case you hadn't heard that before, you might be saying, what does that mean? Okay. Yeshua in Hebrew That's the Lord is salvation. That's what it means. The Lord is salvation. Okay? The English translation of Yeshua is Joshua. Translated into Greek, Yeshua is Lesus, and the English spelling of this is Jesus. So it went from Hebrew, and then to Greek, and then to English. Now, some of you may be worried, and some people are. Some people go so far as to say, we shouldn't say Jesus. We shouldn't sing songs to Jesus. We shouldn't say we worship Jesus. They, should, they teach you should only say Yeshua, because that's the original Hebrew word for this name, the Lord is salvation, okay? That's what it means, the Lord is salvation. And, and, and here's the thing, saying Yeshua is not wrong at all, you can do that, but on here's my question for you. If somebody's going to stand up and say, all right, we, we should not say Jesus, we should say Yeshua, because that's, that's the original Hebrew, all right? My question is, on the day of Pentecost, did Peter step out in the street and say, okay, everyone, I need you to sign up for a Hebrew class, and then I can tell you the good news of the gospel. But first, you got to go do the Hebrew class so I can say everything I need to say to you in Hebrew. Is that how the day of Pentecost went? Nope. They went out in the street, started preaching the gospel. The Spirit made up the difference so that everyone there, the Byzantines, everybody, could hear and understand in their own tongue the good news of the gospel. Yeshua means the Lord is salvation. Joshua means the Lord is salvation. Jesus means the Lord is salvation. Don't come to me and tell me, look, man, it's better to say hello than to say hola. No, it's not. It just depends on where I am and who I'm talking to. They mean the same thing. Hi! Jesus means the Lord is salvation. Every time the name of Jesus leaves your lips, you are declaring the Lord is salvation. And that's the bottom line. They go into the, they go into the conquest. They, they come to a... A city that's a stronghold. they meet a woman of ill repute, her name is Rahab. God spares her. It's very interesting if you go and really read the account. These spies go in. Rahab hides the spies, and, and, and they come back out, and Joshua, the Lord of salvation, is the one that declares, Wh- whatever, "Whatever deal you made with her, we're, we're going to keep it. We're gonna, her family's going to be saved. How do, so now they're going to invade the city, they're going to take it over. She. Rahab, by faith, decided she's going to throw her lot in with these, these Israelite people because she said, I heard, about, I heard about the God of Israel. This would have been many, many years ago, but I heard about the stuff that happened in Egypt. The stories reached my ears. That's, that's the real God. I'm going I'm to I'm I'm go with him. And so how, how do they have a signal when this invading Israelite army is going to come in and overtake this city? She puts a scarlet rope out the window of her house. To signal, this house is safe. All the family within here are safe from the destruction. That scarlet rope is pointing forward to the blood of Christ. Rahab marries Salmon, has a son named Boaz, who ends up being referred to as the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. Ruth, this outcast, this Moabite woman who no one would have had any regard for, redeems her mother-in-law. This redemption language and the whole story of Ruth and Boaz is pointing forward to what Christ is going to do for all of us. Esther puts her life on the line to save her people from certain death, just like Jesus did for us. Of course, he took a step further. And, and, and if you think about everything I've told you thus far, all of, these, all of these types and shadows, they are that. They are types and shadows. And none of them are the fullness. But all of them together, Jesus fulfilled them all. Jesus was the better. Abraham, the better Noah, the better Moses, the better Joshua. Without the frailties and the failings of human nature, Jesus is the best of all of these things. There's a little slave girl who made a way for the healing of the leprosy of Naaman, who was her enemy, pointing forward to Christ, who would die for the healing of his enemies. David, chosen as king, But still a young boy runs out to the front lines to take his brother some food. Hears what's been going on for a while now that there's a Philistine giant named Goliath. He comes out every day to challenge the armies of the living God. He comes out every day to curse the living God. He comes out every day to say, will not one of you cowards come and fight me? David, I I think this is part of the reason uh, Paul tells Timothy not to let anyone despise him because of his youthfulness, man. Sometimes you just need a young buck that doesn't know any better, that'll just get a little indignant. I remember what that was like. We were just hiking this last week, and my friends were joking with me a little bit. It's like, man, I can tell you've slowed down a little. You think a little longer before you jump or climb or whatever you do, man. Age does that to you. Amen. It's a good thing. I'm, I'm all right. I'm happy. Hallelujah. But David was young, and he was anointed. That's the bigger piece of the puzzle. And when those insults to the living God hit David's ear, it was like, oh, no. That Medea anointing got on him. <laughs> nope, that ain't going to happen. Are any of you going to go deal with that? No? Okay. The, the king tries to put his armor on him. He said, that, that doesn't fit, man. I got this. Goes down to the stream and gets five smooth stones runs up, talking the best biblical trash anywhere you ever heard. (laughs) There was a lion and a bear. Goliath, they went down too. Today, the birds are going to feast on you, my man, because you came against the wrong God and the people of the wrong God. And he slings one stone, hits the giant in the forehead, and drops him. And you might think, well, isn't, isn't that story about how we should have courage and slay our giants? No, friends, you've placed yourself wrong in the story. David is a type of Christ in the story, defeating an enemy we couldn't defeat. We're all back on the hill behind the rocks, hiding. We all are the ones that don't have the power to do anything about the Philistine giant. We need someone who has something we don't have to step up and take care of the problem we can't fix. Solomon builds a temple for God, a beautiful temple. And how is Solomon a type of Christ? Well, he's wise and all that, yes. But it's in that building of the temple that he is foreshadowing the fact that what Jesus was going to do was come and build a house for God. But in building a house, the house Jesus built for God is us. The New Testament says we are the house of God. We are living stones fitted together. This building is not the house of God. Thank God we have a building. Thank God it keeps the wind and the rain off of us. But this is not the house of God. We could all go out in a field right now, and that's where the house of God is now. Because we're there. Because God has seen fit to make his dwelling in the earth his people. Not a building made with hands, but a building made with the power of the gospel through the resurrection of Christ. Now that's some of the promises and the foreshadowing, the typology of Christ in the law and the prophets, the law and the writings even. But we haven't even touched those, those are more types that I'm sharing with you. There's, there's some promises mixed in there to Abraham and, and David, that David would have a descendant that would sit on the throne forever. So there's, there's promises mixed into this that we are seeing fulfilled totally and completely in Christ. But I haven't even gotten into specific, detailed prophecies throughout the law and the prophets and the writings would let us know this is not some coincidence. This is not some fake charlatan who is pretending to be Messiah. things like the fact that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. you can find that in Micah 5:2. that Jesus would be born of a virgin. you can find that in Isaiah 7:14. that Jesus would come from the tribe of Judah. We see that in Genesis 49 verse 10, that Messiah would be heir to King David's throne. That's in Second Samuel 7. That Messiah's throne would be anointed and eternal. You can see that in Psalm 45, 6 and 7. That Messiah would be called Emmanuel. We're told that in Isaiah 7, 14. That Messiah would spend a season in Egypt. We see that in Hosea 11, verse 1. That there would be a massacre of children that would happen at Messiah's birthplace. Jeremiah prophesied that in Jeremiah 31. That there would be a messenger who would prepare the way for the Messiah. John the Baptist, we see that in Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. That the Messiah would be rejected by his own people. We see that in Psalm 69 and Isaiah 53. That Messiah would be a prophet was told to us in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. That Jesus would be declared the Son of God is in Psalm 2, verse 7. That Jesus would be called a Nazarene is in Isaiah 11, 1. That he would bring light to Galilee is in Isaiah 9. That he would speak in parables is in Psalm 82 and Isaiah 6. Messiah would be sent to heal the brokenhearted in Isaiah 61. That he would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. We see in Psalm 110, verse 4. Friends, all of these scriptures, Isaiah was roughly 700 years before Jesus was born. The Psalms were roughly 1,000 years before Jesus was born. This is why it's significant that I'm going through all these very detailed prophecies with you, is to see the, the, the statistical chance of one person showing up and fulfilling all the excruciating detail, particularly what we're going to get to a sec- here in a second, it was prophesied, the, cru- the, the mode of death, crucifixion was prophesied 700 to 1,000 years before that practice was even invented. When David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 22, talks about them being pierced through hands and feet, when Isaiah, 700 years before the time of Christ, talks about the same thing, understand something. No one had thought up that incredibly heinous torture yet. That Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey is found in Zechariah 11, that Messiah would be praised by little children as in Psalm chapter 8 verse 2, that Messiah would be betrayed, Psalm 41 and Zechariah 11, that Jesus' price money would be used to buy a potter's field, Zechariah 11, 12 through 13, that Jesus would be falsely accused, we see in Psalm 35 verse 11, that Jesus would be silent before his accusers. What a detail. Isaiah 53, verse 7, that Jesus would be spat upon and be struck, Isaiah 50, verse 6, that Jesus would be hated without cause, Psalm 35 and Psalm 69, that Jesus would be crucified with criminals, Isaiah 53. How do you control that, right? Because some might say, okay, well, Jesus and all these guys and, and um, you know, all the apostles, they all knew the prophecies, and so they just made sure... Jesus, okay, okay. So they made sure there was criminals next to Jesus when he got crucified, just so happened, right? Like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. And, and so many of the things, to think that this could all be orchestrated after the fact is nonsensical. That Messiah would be given vinegar to drink, also something the disciples couldn't control. Psalm 69, verse 21, that his hands and feet would be pierced, we see in Psalm 22, Zechariah 12:10. Messiah that he would be mocked and ridiculed, Psalm 22. The soldiers would gamble for his garments. What a detail, Psalm 22, verse 18, that his bones would not be broken even though this incredible torture had happened. We see in Exodus 12 and Psalm 34, that Jesus would be forsaken by God in Psalm 22, that Jesus would pray for his enemies, Psalm 109, verse 4, that soldiers would pierce Messiah's side, Zechariah 12, verse 10, that Jesus would be buried with the rich, Isaiah 53:9, that Jesus would resurrect from the dead, Psalm 16:10 and Psalm 49, 15. That Messiah would ascend to heaven, Psalm 24, 7 through 10. That Jesus would be seated at God's right hand, Psalm 68 and Psalm 110. And that Jesus would be sacrificed for sin, Isaiah 53, 5 through 12. All the law, the prophets, and the writings point to Jesus. All of them. And thus far, we've covered a lot on the law and the prophets, but Jesus also mentioned the Psalms. And I know much of the prophetic uh, evidence I just gave you for Jesus came from the Psalms, but I I, want to end now, for those of you that were hoping, (laughs) I want to end now looking at the last thing Jesus said. He said the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And there are some that have noticed the sequence starting in Psalm 22 and ending in Psalm 24, that I think is is completely appropriate for us to take a look at and to leave out with today. If you look at Psalm 22 through 24, all of them can be seen as messianic in nature and being focused upon the person and the work of Christ. So I want to start with reading Psalm 22 to you. This is probably the most well-known as a messianic psalm. It's the one that has... Some of the most vibrant details surrounding the the crucifixion of Christ, which is is shocking again because of the timeline. But let me read to you this portion of Psalm 22. The psalm begins with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that ringing bells for anybody? It should. If you're not familiar with the story, Jesus screamed the same thing from the cross. Here it continues. Be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me they open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water all my bones are out of joint my heart is like wax it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot sherd, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you may and you lay me in the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me a band of evil doers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. David wrote this. He was never crucified. It's under the inspiration of the Spirit looking forward. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. When this was written, this was prophetically looking future to the sacrifice of Christ. We read it now and it's written in the past. And so from our vantage point, Psalm 22 is messianic, but it's, it's looking back to, the, for us, the, the crucifixion of Christ. And we're seeing this continuity between the events recorded in the gospels and what had been written in the law and the prophets and the writings, the Psalms and other books. So this is, we we look back to this. This is kind of past tense, okay? Psalm 22. Now, I want to read you Psalm 24. Psalm 24 has been seen by many as future tense. That we're looking forward to what we're reading here in Psalm 24, yet still messianic in nature. Let me read Psalm 24 to you. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he is founded upon the seas and is established upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Who, he who, so who can do that? Who can come up into God's presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. There is only one who on his own merit could walk into the presence of God with clean hands and a pure heart. That is Jesus, our Messiah. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, He is the king of glory. What's the picture we have here? We have the king of glory coming up to the gates. He's called here a lord of hosts. This is a picture of Christ leading all those who are made righteous by faith in him into the gates of the living God. He leads the procession. He is the one who, as we sang earlier, fought the battle that had to be fought, won the war. He is the victorious, the glorious king out in front of the procession. And this is a call open the gates. This mighty king is coming in, but he's bringing a host with him. Those whom he's rescued, those whom he loves, and now love him to spend eternity in that holy mountain that is the abode of God. And so we have Psalm 22 looking past, we have Psalm 24 looking forward. What about Psalm 23? In the middle, I want to submit to you that Psalm 23 is messianic in the present tense. It's the ministry of Christ to us right now. And here's kind of the tie in with the word fulfilled. Obvi- I think, obviously, thus far, Jesus was talking about his fulfillment of all that was written about him in the law, the prophets, and the writings. But, friends, I also want you to see this reality. It is only by faith in the finished work of Christ, his death on our behalf and his resurrection from the dead, that any human has any hope of being fulfilled now and for eternity. And I want to read you Psalm 23, and I want you to think about it in these terms. Because when I ask you right now, are you living a fulfilled life? There would be a wide variance of what people run to to answer that question. What people consider a fulfilled life could vary widely. And friends, what I want to submit to you is that the Scriptures narrow down for us here what a fulfilled life really looks like. And I want you to know that this fulfilled life can be grasped one way, by trust in the Messiah of Psalm 22, 23, 24, and all of the rest of the Scriptures. Let's read Psalm 23 as the fulfilled life that Christ is working in those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. This is a fulfilled life in Christ. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. This is a fulfilled life, friends. This is what humans are really made for. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, on this Resurrection Sunday, I'm hoping for two things. That we can rejoice in Christ's complete fulfillment of all that was written about him in the scriptures. And then we can walk out of here by his power and live the fulfilled life he has called us to in Christ. And if you forget what that looks like, take a look at Psalm 23. Praise God. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you for Dr. Luke and his account of this incredible encounter where Jesus shows up in the room. We see the apostles startled. We see the apostles overcome with amazement. We see them struggling to believe what it is they must believe. And then we see our king open up their minds to the scriptures. Lord, please forgive us for any time we have treated your word with disdain. Forgive us for any time we have set as a lower priority than it belongs. Your precious and powerful word. It is your word, Lord. that can bring us to the place of true faith where where we understand who you are and who we are and what our relation to you is, how it is we come to you properly. Lord, thank you that your word does not leave room for us to create a savior in our own image, because that is not how this is supposed to go. We are supposed to be shaped into your image, not the other way around. Please help us, Lord, to joyfully submit to that reality today. And I pray, God, As our hearts are overcome, as we are overwhelmed with the incredible truth of how powerful your word is, how congruent and connected your word is, and how all of it is pointing us to the truth about Jesus. Lord, may we be filled with joy. May we be able to say, because of you, Lord, we are fulfilled, and yet there is a final fulfillment we wait for. Lord, we are fulfilled as much as someone can be on the plane of existence we find ourselves right now. There is a final fulfillment coming when the great and glorious King takes us through his gates. We look forward with great anticipation, Lord, because you've been faithful to every promise, because you fulfilled everything that was said before you came the first time, because you did exactly what you said you would do, because we, you showed us how mighty and powerful and good and loving you are. Lord, we trust. That because you've told us you're coming again, that you will. And that everything you said is going to happen will. We look forward to that day. In the meantime, help us do what it is you have called us to do. To go into all the world and to share this incredible truth with everybody that will stand still long enough to listen. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.